The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back to Brutal Nation, the podcast series that's dedicated to talking about filthy Jews. Dieter, you can't say that, dude. You're going to get me sued. I am only telling the truth, Scott. We are talking about the Jewish man today, the filthy bastard Jew. God damn. Okay, no, I knew it was a bad fucking idea to let you introduce the show. The fuck down. To let you out of your room. Jesus Christ. I should have listened to you. Welcome to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, and right across from me is the one, the only, Tammy, the Squatch, Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Hi, everybody. So we are doing an interesting one today. We're going to talk about Mr. And this is actually a recent case. Right. You were saying that. Yeah. like He was uh, like, we're talking like this year. Recent. Wow. Yeah. We're going to be telling you guys a story about Robert Allen Durst. And here's my prologue. New York City is a busy town. Money changes hands in the blink of an eye. And it seems like 24 hours a day there's a deal happening in the Big Apple. This is a story about money, opportunity, and a torn mind. I present to you Robert Allen Durst. In 1907, Robert's grandfather immigrated to the U.S. from their native Austria-Hungary. He was a successful tailor, and he eventually became a property manager and developer in New York. He founded the Durst Organization in 1927, which became one of the most lucrative companies in America, even to this day. I was going to say, the name Durst sounds familiar. It is. It's, it's a very, very large company. Um, yeah. Very lucrative. Well, Robert was born on April 12th of 1943, and he was the oldest of four children. He had the best of everything, the best of schools, money, you name it. He got whatever he wanted because, you know, we're talking some rich, powerful people. That's why this one attracted me. Oh, yeah. Tragedy would come in the form of his mother's death when he was seven years old. Robert would later say that when his mother jumped from the window of their high-rise home, his father led him to the window and he saw her fall to her death. Almost like... Uh, well, we'll get to that. It's almost like it sounded like his father made her jump or had her thrown out the window. Yeah. But there's nothing that backs up what Robert claims. So, of course, it was just him and his dad, right? So there's nobody here saying, yeah, no, that's what that motherfucker did. Robert's father, Seymour, wanted Robert to take over the family business, but Robert, yeah, he had no desire to do so. In high school, he was described as a loner, however. Um... He was a business manager of the high school newspaper, as well as played on the lacrosse team. After high school, he went on to get his bachelor's degree in economics and then headed off to California to get a doctoral degree. I'm assuming in economics. Yeah, I'm assuming PhD. <clears throat> That's where he met Susan Berman, and she's going to play into this story a little bit later. They were just friends, by the way. Soon after, he left, he left California and went back to New York. Robert didn't want to work for the family company, so he opened up his own health food store in Vermont called All Good Things. That's what he wanted to do. Okay. Yeah, which is fair enough, you know. If you don't, you know, so, some people want to do just different shit. Yeah. 
In 1970, so now we're going to talk about the disappearance of his first wife, and her name was uh, Kathleen McCormick Durst. Okay. In 1971, Robert met a dental hygienist by the name of Kathleen McCormick. After two dates, he invited McCormick to share his home in Vermont with him. Wow. Two dates, man. That must have been That's some... a record even for you. That's some good loving right there, man. That must have been like 4th of July fireworks coming out of the vagina stuff. Just saying. Because, you know, I'm motivated by vagina. I know you are. <laughs> so she moved in in January of 1972. However, uh, Robert's dad pressured him to come back to New York uh, to work in the Durst organization. So the couple returned back to Manhattan. Manhattan. <laughs> and they were married on April 12th, 1973, which was Durst's 30th birthday. Happy birthday to him. At the same time of her disappearance... Uh, at the same time of her disappearance, McCormick was a student in her fourth and final year at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. She was studying to be a pediatrician, and she, uh, she was only like a few months short of earning her degree. McCormick was last seen, this is, this is part of the convoluted story, so pay attention, boys and girls and squatches. McCormick was last seen by someone other than Durst, on the evening of January 31st of 82. She was seen with somebody other than her? No, no, or by, by, some, by somebody oh, okay. other than her. Just want to clarify. By, uh, than Robert. Uh, when she appeared unexpectedly at a dinner party thrown by her friend uh, Gilbert Najimi? N-A-J. Najimi. That's it. So remember his name, by the way, boys and girls, because he's going to play into this story a little bit later on. There's an actress by the last name of Najimi, Catherine oh. Najimi. I dream of Najimi. <laughs> anyway, that was in New, uh, Newtown, Connecticut. Najimi noticed that McCormick was upset and was wearing red sweatpants. And so he found it odd because McCormick often dressed in much higher quality what clothing. What year was that? This was uh, back in 82. Okay. So, yeah, uh, normally... Catherine, or Kathleen, whatever, Catherine? I can't remember her name now. Anyway, she normally dressed in some high-end clothes. She wasn't the kind that ran around in sweatpants and shit. But she showed up at a dinner party all disheveled and wearing these red sweatpants, right? And that's why her friend... No, it stood Gilbert, out. Yeah, it's all like, hey, something's gone. So anyway, McCormick later left for her, what's called her marital home, in South Salem, New York. After a call from her husband. So Robert gave her a call. She's like, I got a split, man. Although the couple argued and fought that evening, Robert maintained, or maintained that he put his wife on a commuter train to, uh, to New York City at the uh, Katona Station. K-A-T-O-N-A-H. Katona? Katona? Whatever it is. Then he went and had a drink with a neighbor and spoke to his wife uh, at their Manhattan apartment by telephone later that night. Robert later admitted that he just went home and went to bed. So he kind of changed the story a little bit. Like, I just went home and went to bed. So his quote is, that's what I told the police. Robert later told documentary filmmaker of, a, of an HBO series called The Jinx, which will also play into this. Um, and quote, I was hoping that it would make everything go away by lying to him. Like, it's just going to go... And it's done. 
After McCormick had left Najimi's house, the two were supposed to meet up at a pub called the Lion's Gate in Manhattan. When she failed to appear, Najimi became concerned and repeatedly called the police for several days. Like, hey, look, my friend never showed up. She disappeared, right? Later that week, Robert filed a missing persons report. So both the doorman and the building superintendent at the couple's apartment on uh, Riverside Drive claimed that they had seen McCormick on February 1st, the day after she was last uh, seen in independently, like by anybody else, right? Okay. But the doorman also said that he had only seen her from behind and from a half a block away, so he couldn't be exactly sure if it was actually her. Okay. A private investigator hired by Robert's own criminal defense lawyer uh, later said that the doorman said that he had not seen McCormick arrive at all and that he, and, and that he may not have been working that night. That, the, that, that she disappeared. Right. So now the story's changed by him, right? So about three weeks after Robert reported McCormick missing, the superintendent uh, uh, at the Riverside Drive apartment found some of her possessions in the building trash compactor, like they'd just been thrown away. McCormick had been uh, treated at the Bronx Hospital for facial bruises three weeks before her disappearance. And she told a friend that Robert beat her up. I was going to say, it sounds like domestic violence. Oh, totally. Um, but she didn't press charges over the incident. Okay, so she said, no, I'm not going to press charges. What McCormick did do is she asked Robert for a $250,000 divorce settlement. Instead, Robert just simply canceled her credit cards and removed her name from the joint bank account. Leaving her pretty much high and dry. Yeah. And refused to, and refused to pay for any of her uh, medical school tuition. At the time McCormick disappeared, Robert had been dating on the side a side chick, a, a lady named Prudence Farrow, for about three years, and was living in a separate apartment as well. So, kind of living two lives is what it sounds like to me. Robert had initially offered a hundred thousand dollars for his wife's return. And then reduced that to $15,000 when one of McCormick's friends and her sister found out that she had been reported missing. They broke into uh, McCormick's cottage, right? Right. Uh, and they're, they're, they were hoping to find her, like in there, like her body or something. Instead, they found that the cottage had been totally ransacked and gone through. And her mail had been left unopened. And her belongings were in the trash. Hmm. So eight years after McCormick disappeared, Robert actually divorced her, claiming spousal abandonment, which is really the only thing you can do. Right, pretty much. It's not like you can say, hey, she cheated on me. She's, you know, you haven't seen her in eight fucking years. Yeah, and you really don't want to have her declared legally dead because... Right, well, not quite yet, but we're going to get to that. In 2016, the McCormick family asked that Kathleen actually be declared legally dead. That request was granted the next year. Kathleen's mother and McCormick tried to sue Robert for $100 million, alleging that he killed McCormick, depriving them of the right to actually bury her. McCormick's parents, are they're now dead. They're deceased. Okay. Her younger sister, Mary McCormick Hughes, also believes that Robert murdered her. 
The New York State Police quietly reopened the investigation into her disappearance in 1999. We're going to party like it's 1999. Little Prince, yeah? Like that? No? Okay. He does it way better. Oh, I know he does. Or did, because he's dead now. I know. So sad. Now he ain't doing nothing. I'll never forget when he did uh, the Super Bowl show down in Miami, and it was pouring down rain, and he refused to call the show, and he opened up Purple Rain, <laughs> and right as soon as he did that, a deluge of rain came down. Nice. It was like he ordered it. Yeah. He probably did. That's when he hid behind the curtain and did his profile, his, you know, his silhouette, and he had his guitar, and it looked like a phallus. I'm going to call myself as the artist formerly known as Scott. You're going to be formerly known as Scott <laughs> one of these days. So check this shit out, okay? So this is the first time when they reopened that investigation in 99 that they actually searched Robert's former South Salem home in New York. The investigators became uh, the investigation became uh, public knowledge in new in November of 2000. In August of 2019, a wrongful death lawsuit against Robert was filed by another of the McCormick sisters. Carol Bamonte, uh, that's who filed it, was her sister. Okay. Kind of lost my trace there. My yeah, I can tell. Anyway, it was dismissed on the grounds that she had waited way too long to file that suit, which is understandable, man. You're talking, you know, the 80s versus all of a sudden you're in 2018. Yeah. Or 19, rather. In 2018, the U.S. Court of Appeals had already revised the exact date of McCormick's death to match the day that she actually disappeared in January of 1982. On May 17th of 2021, during Robert's trial for the murder of Susan Berman, which we're going to get into here next, Winchester Can Westchester County District Attorney Mimi Roche announced that McCormick's disappearance had been reclassified as a murder and would be reinvestigated. So now let's talk about the murder of Susan Berman. This is the one that actually caught my attention the most. And you're going to see why in a... In, in, like two seconds. So Susan Berman, she was a longtime friend of Robert's, um, and she'd actually offered him up uh, an alibi after McCormick's disappearance. Uh, and but get this, she was the daughter of a guy by the name of David Berman, who was a reputed gangster, uh, who in the late forties actually operated the Flamingo Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. Oh, seriously? Yeah. So you're talking about Wait. like a hardcore. What's his name? Bugsy Siegel, the Flamingo? Mm, oh, no, no, no. He was the, um, that V, not Venetian. I can't remember. I know which one I'm thinking of, but it wasn't the Flamingo. My bad. Well, on December 24th of 2000, Berman was found murdered, execution style, in her home in Benedict Canyon, Los Angeles, California. Okay. After her neighbors called the police to report uh, that her back door was open and her three fox terriers, they were on the loose. Wow. Yeah, and apparently she loved her dogs. That wouldn't happen with her dogs, right? It's a high neighborhood there. So a few days later, oh. a letter addressed to the Beverly Hills Police Department, postmarked December 23rd, Contain Berman's address and the word cadaver. What year? 
That was uh, in blah, 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 December 21st. So when the hell was her body found? God damn it. Now I got to... 2000. Okay. Jesus Christ, man. I got to remember shit. So on the envelope, though, the word Beverly was actually misspelled. Of course. Robert is known to be... Was known to have been in Northern California days before Berman was killed and then flew from San Francisco to New York the night before Berman's body was actually discovered. Berman had uh, recently received $50,000 from Robert in two payments. And Robert did admit to the LAPD that he had sent Berman $25,000. So he, he admitted that the payments happened, right? He also faxed investigators a copy of her 1982 deposition regarding his missing wife. After doing that, though, he said, I'm not giving you any more information. We're done. We're kaput. Then he said, Morty. Morty, you have to get the Gavelta fish. That's not kosher. I need some matzo balls. This dirty Jew. No, I'm sorry. That's horrible. Robert stated in a 2005 deposition that Berman called him shortly before her death to say that the LAPD actually wanted to talk to him about McCormick's disappearance. A study of the case notes by The Guardian cast doubt on whether the LAPD had made the, uh, the call or not. Uh, whenever the Westchester County District Attorney, Janine Pirro, had scheduled an interview with Berman at all, or, you know, with, with, with any of that had ever happened. Right. So he might just be full of shit. Probably is. Because he's a Jew. You know I say that shit just to see that look of disgust? Because I do have one Jewish friend. <laughs> I believe that it is one <laughs> Jewish friend. I know you know you and I have talked about him. Oh yeah, he's going to tell me how to keep the young. Yeah, Fred. I like Fred. He's a good feller. On October thirty first of two thousand, after being tipped off by his sister, Wendy. Uh, oh, after being tipped off by his sister Wendy, they we're talking about Robert again, right? Uh, that the McCormick investigation had reopened. Durst went into hiding and moved to Galveston, Texas, disguising himself as a mute woman to avoid police inquiry. Berman biographer Kathy Scott has said that Robert killed her because she knew too much about his wife's disappearance. My side notes. When I read read about the death of Susan Berman and who her father was, I thought to myself, is this guy a fucking idiot? Her father's a real gangster, and he will kill you. Yeah. Like, not even, like, a little bit. We're talking, yeah, no. like, really fucking dead, right? Get his Tommy gun. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> In a violin case. Come here, Bugsy. We're going to get him, see? <laughs> it doesn't matter how much money your family has. He will not only kill you, he'll fucking torture your dumb ass. And he'll find a way to hide the body. Yeah, they'll never find your fucking body, and that's not kosher. We know that. You can ask the rabbi about that. That's not kosher. You're so bad. All right. And then there's Morris Black. Oh, a man. I think he was Jewish with a name like Morris. And he was white. I know he was white. I feel it in my bones. Yeah. The name like Morris? That's a Jewish name right there. Uh, yeah, Morris It's one of two Jewish things. Name. He's either Jewish or he's a cat. A yellow tabby? Yeah, he's the, the one of the two, and I'm pretty sure this Ooh. motherfucker didn't meow. 
I hit the guitar case. Oh, it's fine. I that's know. why I have cases. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's your heavy ass guitar too. Yeah, that's that. That's my the one that I lifted the other day and thought I was freaking. It's those vintage Les Pauls, man. I think they made them out of used typewriters and fucking. Oh, I have one of those old style Underwood typewriters that I can be like. Ooh. Oh yeah, man. If you ever want to do uh, resistance training and lift weights, don't go to a gym. Come and lift these fucking Les Pauls. Yeah, come to my Jesus. house, lift my typewriter. That yeah, thing man. do some damage if I hit somebody over the head. <laughs> I couldn't lift it to hit somebody over the head with it, but yeah, I could. I certainly. Anyway, on October 9th of two thousand one, Robert was arrested in Galveston, Texas. Shortly after, body parts belonging to his elderly neighbor, Morris Black, were found floating in Galveston Bay. He was released on $250,000 bail. Well, he skipped town, missing his court date on October 16th. And a warrant was issued for his arrest and the charge of bail jumping, which makes sense. He jumped bail, right? On November 30th, he was caught inside a Wegmans supermarket in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Oh. He's like all over the map. Yeah, hell yeah, man. He's like, like New York, California. Dude. Like Notorious P.I.G., he's everywhere. I like Never. how you have him mounted on your computer. Yep. <laughs> Anywho, check this shit out. This is, this is, it's still going to start showing a lot about his mental stability. He was trying to shoplift Band-Aids, a newspaper, and a chicken salad sandwich from the store, right? Although he had 500 bucks in cash in his pocket. Uh, Ing! Charles Ing! Yeah. You know? Yeah. So the police searched his rental car, and they found $37,000 in cash, two handguns, some weed, that's the marijuanas, and Black's driver's license, and directions to Gilbert Najimy's home in Connecticut. Wow. It's all playing together. And I put down here, do you remember Gilbert? Do you remember Gilbert? Najimy. Yeah, he was the good friend of the missing first wife that kept calling the police after she vanished. Yeah. So Robert also used his Oh. Anywho's <laughs> He also used his time to stalk his brother Douglas, and we're going to get into Douglas's deal here later on. Um, visiting the driveway of his home in Katona, New York, while armed, by the way. Okay. Robert hired defense attorney John Waldron. We've all heard of John Waldron. He's a famous attorney. I've heard of him on several cases. You've never heard of him? He's a pretty high-profile fucking attorney, man. Probably have. While he was held on charges in Pennsylvania, he was eventually extradited to Texas for trial. In 2003, Robert was tried for the murder of Black. The district attorney was going for first-degree murder and wouldn't offer up a plea deal for a lesser charge at all. Like, not manslaughter, nothing. He's like, I've got you dead to rights. You're fucked. Yeah. He employed self-defense attorney Dick DeGurgin? D-E-G-U-E-R-I-N? Whatever. Um, And he claimed self-defense. DeGurgin conducted two mock trials to prepare for this case. Robert's defense team had difficulty communicating with Robert, though. So they hired a psychiatrist, Dr. Milton Altschuler. 
That's another Jewish name right there, Milton. Totally. Yeah. So you have Morris and Milton. Say, don't you have a character in your head named Oh Morty? I'm Morty. Shh. Hold on. Go back. Go back. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. He wanted to get out of his room and talk because he is upset that Dieter talked at this episode and he hasn't gotten to talk at all because he's a horrible Jew hater. That's why. God damn it, Scott. You let him come out, say horrible things about the Jewish people. We're the chosen ones. Bastards. Go back to your room. Fine. If people can see you, you actually literally roll your eyes in the back of your head <laughs> saying, nope, go back, go back. <laughs> so anywho, the shrink spent over 70 hours examining uh, Robert and diagnosed that he had Asperger's syndrome, saying that his whole life, his whole life's history is so compatible with the diagnosis of Asperger's disorder. His defense team argued at the trial that the diagnosis explained his behavior. Robert claimed that Black, a cranky con- uh, confrontational loner, grabbed his 22 caliber target pistol from its hiding place and threatened him with it. During the struggle, the pistol went off and shooting and it shot Black in the face. So during cross-examination, Robert admitted to using a, get this, a paring knife, two saws, and an axe to dismember Black's body before bagging it up and dumping the remains in Galveston Bay. And I put here, what? A freaking paring knife? Seriously? For those of you that don't know what a paring knife is, I'll explain. It's a very small knife. It's got like a two to four inch blade. Yeah. Used on veggies and fruit. And the blade of a paring knife is roughly only three inches long. Yeah, I have a two inch one and I have a four inch one. Yeah. They're mm. not very fucking big. You just hacked a guy up using a fucking paring knife. That takes dedication. That's gangster. Because I have I can't even cut veggies with a paring knife. We also use two saws and an axe, too. But Jesus Christ, man. I, still. I read fucking paring knife and my butthole puckered up. <coughs> so Black's head, though, was never recovered. So prosecutors were unable to present significant forensic evidence to dispute Robert's account of the struggle. As a result of lack of forensic evidence, the jury acquitted Robert of murder on November 11th of 2003. So, we're going to jump back and forth a little bit because it all plays in. On December 21st of 2004, Robert pled guilty to two counts of bail jumping and I don't think that's the right fucking... Oh, that's 2003. Yeah, okay. I guess we're not jumping back and forth. Okay, fine. Whatever. He pled guilty to two counts of bail jumping and one count of evidence tampering for dismembering Black's body. As part of his plea bargain, he received a sentence of five years and was given credit for time served. He actually only served about two years in prison. Okay. Robert was paroled on July 15th of 2005. So the rules of his release required him to stay near his home, and he had to get permission to travel anywhere. Okay. That wasn't really close to his home. That makes sense. Almost house arrest, right? Well, this guy's a genius. Because that December, Robert made an unauthorized trip to the boarding house where Black lived, had lived, and was killed. Uh, And then... 
to a nearby shopping mall. And at the mall, he ran into former Galveston trial judge, Susan Chris. Of course he did. And that's who had presided over his trial. So she knew he was basically on house arrest. Yeah. Well, yeah. She gave the fucking sentence and she's all, um, dude, <laughs> the fuck you doing here? Yeah. So Robert obviously violated his parole and he was taken back to jail. He was released again from custody on March 1st of 2006. So he still didn't serve that much fucking time. Susan Chris was later asked in March of 2015 whether she believed Robert murdered Black. And Chris commented, quote, You could see that the person knew what they were doing, and this was not their first time. The body was cut perfectly like a surgeon who knew how to use this tool on this bone and a certain kind of tool on that muscle. It looked like not the first time. It looked like not a first-time job. This was pretty scary. Kind of like Brant, Charlie, Carl Brant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Charlie Brant, yeah. Not to be confused with Charlie Brown's Christmas. No. Charlie Brant. He's the one that committed suicide, and they after they found his niece all hacked up, they realized, he, this isn't the first time he did this. Yeah. It was like, um, this isn't an act of passion, a crime of passion here. This no, is another fucking this is, is He's done this before. So in early 2015, this is the this is all playing in. So bear with me. A six-part HBO documentary titled "The Jinx: The Life and Deaths of Robert Durst" describes circumstantial evidence linking Robert to the murders of Berman, who was believed to have had knowledge of McCormick's disappearance. See, and that keeps popping up on my playlist when I open up my HBO Max, but I keep putting off watching it. You're gonna want to watch it. But wait till the end of this, and you'll see exactly why. Okay. Because I want to watch it now. So the documentary detailed the disappearance of McCormick Berman's, and Berman's uh, subsequent death and the killing of Black. So it covers it all, right? His lawyer and his wife, Deborah Lee Charton, C-H-A-R-T, Sheridan, told him, don't do it, dude. Do not do it. Don't do this fucking HBO show. Yeah. And Robert did it anyway. He's like, fuck you. I'm of course. Robert also gave several interview and unrestricted access to his personal records to the filmmakers. Well, the FBI, which here in the States is called the Federal Bureau of Investigation. They're the big cops. Yeah, not the female body inspectors. That's me. I'm like a uh, small yay of the woman body. <laughs> They taste great. Anyway, arrested Robert in Nolens on the same day the final episode aired. What does that look for? I'm thinking. The documentary ends with Durst moving into the, into the bathroom, where his, mic, where his microphone recorded him seemingly say to himself, there it is. You're caught. You're right, of course. Uh... But you can't imagine arrest him. I don't know what I don't know what's in the house. Oh, I want this. What a disaster. He was right, I was wrong, and then burping. I'm having difficulty with questions. Uh what the hell am I what the hell did I do? Who was saying this? 
Rogers? This is this is what Robert's saying. This is to all himself. fragmented. To himself, yeah. Like Killed he's talking to more than one person. But this was what got him. Ready? What the hell did I do? Killed them all, of course. It was later learned in 2019, though, that the filmmaker had altered the sequence of, of Robert's comments, increasing the apparent severity of his musings in the bathroom. Oh, so edited it against Durst. Right. But they used that last statement, you know, right. uh, what exactly did I, you know, what did I do? Killed them all, of course. That was what cued the FBI into, dude, we need to, we need to bag this motherfucker. Yeah. Wow. The Associated Press reported uh, reported that a March 1999 letter from Robert to Berman discovered by her stepson and turned over to the filmmakers during their research provided new key evidence leading to the filing of murder charges against Robert. So it's a combination of both, right? So let's take a quick step back and explain how his wife at the time, Deborah Lee uh, Charton, came to be. Just so that we're clear. Okay. Because she just appears out of nowhere, right? You're like, whoa, wait a minute. He killed his wife already. Well, this is a newbie. I was say, isn't this his second one? Correctamundo. Okay. On December 11th of 2011, shortly before Berman, uh, the Berman killing, Robert married Deborah Lee Charton. According to the New York Times, the couple briefly shared a Fifth Avenue apartment in 1990, but, quote, have never lived together as husband and wife. Robert once told his sister, Wendy, that it was a marriage of convenience. I wanted Debbie to be able to uh, receive my inheritance, and I intend to kill myself, Robert had said in a 2005 deposition. Uh, and that's when he was arrested for the Morris Black killing in 2001. When, oh, wait a minute. When he was arrested for the Morris Black killing? Oh, that's a whole sentence. <laughs> when he was arrested for the Morris Black killing in 2001, Charton is the one who wired him the $250,000 bail that the court required. She also visited Robert in jail and spoke to him on the phone on a pretty, re- pretty regular basis, discussing his legal strategy and other personal business issues. Are we paying attention, boys and girls? All right. Since the Morris Black trial, Charton reportedly had distanced him, uh, herself from Robert and his affairs. Trial comes up, she's like, ah, I need to get away, uh, legal or otherwise. In particular, Charton specifically told Robert, as I said, not to get involved with the HBO documentary, uh, to which they, he had disagreed at the time. He said, no, I'm going to fucking do it anyway. Charton's friend said that after Robert's arrest in 2015, she, didn't spoke, she had not spoken to him since the documentary began airing in February of that year. In October of 2021, shortly after Robert's first degree conviction for the murder of Susan Berman, the Westchester County, New York District Attorney's Office announced that they would impanel a grand jury to explore charges against Robert in the disappearance of his first wife, Kathleen McCormick. Robert Durst was officially charged on October 22nd of 2021, so just a few months ago from right fucking now. Yeah. Just over two months. In her death. He's currently serving a life sentence for the death of Susan Berman. There, 
There are also some things that may link Robert to other women who disappeared, by the way. This is where it gets a little bit more interesting. Okay. Days after the Berman murder, police uh, reportedly examined connections between Robert and the disappearance of an 18-year-old by the name of Lynn Schultz from Middlebury, Vermont, and 16-year-old Karen Mitchell from Eureka, California. Eureka's on the coast of California, by the way. I knew that. Highway 101. I knew that. I've stayed at the Red Lion there many times. Great place. Eureka. Not to be confused with Yreka, down I-5. Down I-5, which is a dump. Yeah, because my son screamed from Yreka to Roseburg. (laughs) Investigators are also looking into the possible connection between Robert and the disappearance of 18-year-old Christian Madarafi, M-O-D-A-F-F-E-R-I. Whatever. He was last seen in San Francisco in 1997. Schultz, a uh, Middlebury College freshman, visited Durst's health food store on December 10th of 71, the day she vanished. She was last seen that afternoon near a bus uh, stop across from the store. The Jaren characterized, that's that attorney, that Schultz's investigation was opportunistic. And said that he would not permit his client to be questioned by Vermont police. Author and investigator journalist Matt Burbeck reported in 2003 and again in 2015 in a book uh, titled A Deadly Secret that credit card records placed Robert in Eureka on November 25th of 1997. Okay. The day that Mitchell had vanished. That's the other girl. Mitchell may have volunteered in a homeless shelter where Robert actually frequented. Because keep in mind, man, his mind's all fucked up. Right. Um, Mitchell had uh, frequented. So Robert dressed in women's clothes and had visited uh, the Eureka shoe store owned by Mitchell's aunt. Mitchell was last seen walking uh, to work from her aunt's store or walking from work, rather, from her aunt's uh, store, and possibly speaking to somebody in a stopped car. A witness sketch of Mitchell's presumed abductor really does resemble kind of a lot. Although the FBI ultimately couldn't, could not connect Robert to the Long Island serial murders, in which some of the victims were disposed of in a similar manner as Black was, the FBI created an informal task force in 2012 to work with other agencies and jurisdictions where Robert was known to have lived in the past decades. These included Vermont, New York, and California. And I'd imagine Texas has got to be in there. Yeah. Too, right? It only makes sense. In the wake of his recent arrest, the FBI encouraged such lo- uh, localities to really reexamine cold cases. Texas private investigator Bobby Baca, B-A-C-H-A, and that's a girl, by the way, um, has also traced Robert operating under stolen identities in Texas, Florida, Massachusetts, New Jersey, South Carolina, Mississippi, and Virginia. So, is Robert the same person that killed victims in Long Island, New York, and perhaps in other places all over the U.S.? I think that only time is going to really tell that. 
if the FBI will be able to prove it or not. The other option uh, is, though, that Robert Durst, being in his 80s and having many health issues, if he indeed is the, is the killer that the FBI suspects him of being, maybe he'll just confess on his deathbed and everybody will get some closure. The Golden State Killer never did. Never did? No, that's correct. Well, yeah, we're going to cover him because of the weird way he was caught, um, even though he's pretty high profile. But still, I, I want to touch on how he was caught. But, yeah, he... Well, what gets me is you would think that his family would have gotten him help early on. Yeah. A little bit earlier, kind of maybe had had him committed or something like that. Seeing, I'm waiting for him to release a book, though, that says, if I did it, this is how it would have happened. Oh, my God, yes. <laughs> That's fucked up. That was a bad joke. Bad joke. It's okay to pick on O.J. Simpson. It is. Because that. Well, because I have heard that it's okay to pick on him because, A, the African-American community can't stand him either. But, B, he thinks he's white. <laughs> it's not only that. You talk about fucking entitled. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Number one, you, you, you get acquitted of murder. Okay? Right. You're like, cool, I'm free. Yeah, so and let me go steal some stuff. That I sold. I sold you some stuff, mm. but I'm going to steal the stuff that I sold you back. My sports memorabilia. It's fucking yeah, I sold it to you because I wanted to get out from under the debt that I incurred when I was, you know, brought up on wrongful death charges. <laughs> yeah, quote. Yeah. So and then on top of that, you write a book called If I Did It. You want to talk about being very disgraceful, disrespectful to somebody's oh family. Oh, God. You know, what he, and you know what? Maybe he didn't do it. Hypothetically, that's just for the argument's sake. Say he then didn't how do is it. his book so detailed? Why would you even bother writing a book about it at Any, all? Yeah. You know, God, give the not, let her family have some fucking closure. Yeah. Rick. Yeah. Fuck. The juice. The juice can kiss my fucking brown eye. Put him right up there with Homolka. Not as bad as Homolka, but right up there. Pretty fucking close. Right up there with Homolka. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to add to this? No, he was a bizarre case. Yeah. Very And very charges strange. are still pending. Yeah, he, they're 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 reinvestigating uh the No might have to do a follow up later. Yeah, oh yeah. I'm keeping I think he might die though. If you look at pictures of him, like in court now, you could tell he's every bit of his eighty and like ready to he could croak this moment. Like five minutes from now, he could be dead. That's what he looks like. He's going to blow up my phone here pretty soon. Robert Durst found dead. He looks like he already died, and they're just wheeling I know I the saw it. in there. Yeah. That's what they're doing. They're just, I'm already dead. I don't know what you want. Morty, Morty, I think I already died. Call. You better call, call the rabbi. Oh, I need the blessing. That's what it looks like. That's crazy. All right. Remember, you can send us an email at Brutal Nation at Twisted Blue LLC. You can check out the website, which we appreciate, at Brutal Nation. Oh, fuck me. At TwistedBlueLLC.com. Click on the Amazon link. Helps out the show. Doesn't cost you a damn thing extra. It's just a nice thing to do. Check out our Patreon page. If you choose to sponsor us, anything helps, man. It really does. Uh, let's see. What else? Look for our blogs, mostly on Medium. We like Medium a lot. Crime Beat that's on Medium. 
This show's copyrighted 2021 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights reserved, and we will talk to you guys on a filthy Friday tomorrow. Spank me, big mommy. Nothing to that? I'm scared. You're just going to sit over there with that fucked no, up look? you scared me. How did I scare you? I'm, I got to go hide now. That I'm, scared me. I want your mom to spank me. Stop it! Mm, tell me I'm a bad boy. I would say something, but it would just spur you on. Oh, I want your mom to use spurs. <laughs> that is not what I meant. <laughs> All right, say bye, Tim. Bye, everybody.